Father, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to come together and uh, just honor you for what you've done in our life. We have so much to be thankful for, but most of all, we thank you for a salvation that is so rich and full. Lord, we thank you for each other as well and the fellowship that we have within the church and what that means to us. So thank you for Oak Church and the partnership that we have. Actually, the word fellowship and partnership are the same words. And so I just thank you for them and for their ministry and for the opportunity that we have to share together in the work of the kingdom. Lord, I pray now that you would bless me as I share uh, from your word, that you'd help me to be faithful to your word and just help me to communicate it the best I possibly can. Uh, again, thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, you thought I was going to pray for Alabama, didn't you? Okay. Well, I did in my heart, but I just didn't bring it out in my voice. But anyway, uh, we will hope for the best, and I'll uh, pray about the best and preach about the best. We're going to be looking today at Psalm 22. Psalm 22. My assignment from, uh, I, uh, from Rob was Psalm 22, and uh, uh, as noted, by this year's Christmas theme, it's one of the prophetic psalms, and it's a special prophecy that held a message of hope for his followers who would be standing beneath the cross 1,000 years later on the very day that Jesus Christ died. And it also has a special message for us today and for all future generations. Matter of fact, it says so if we want to jump to the last verse. My sermons are a lot shorter than, than Rob's, and so, you know, I gave you my introduction, and now I'm already at the last verse. No, I'll just throw this last verse at you because of that promise. It says this, verses 30 and 31, future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those yet not born. They will hear about everything that he has done. Wonderful words. So what does prophetic actually mean? Well, it's pretty simple. The meaning of prophecy is a message from God. The word prophesy is the verb form of prophecy and means basically to speak forth to God. I think it's important to know that in light of, light of the fact today, we have a lot of people that actually claim to be prophets. There were several well-known prophets in, our, in, in the states who uh, prophesied that Trump would win a second term. Uh, now, we know that didn't happen. We're not sure why it didn't happen. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it didn't happen, all right? Uh, according to the Bible, though, if a prophet is wrong, then he or she really isn't a prophet. Matter of fact, the Bible calls that person a false prophet. And uh, it can be dangerous if you prophesy something and you miss it. Not today. Today, a simple apology is accepted and everybody goes on their way, like some of the prophets of today. But in those days, according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, it says that if you prophesy in the name of the Lord and you miss it, then you're dead. Okay? So it was, it was a, a grading scale that was pretty, pretty significant. Well, a so-called prophet today... All they have to do is just apologize. Now, we call them false prophets. Down in Alabama, where I came from, we called them wackos. means basically the same thing. And you can quote me on that because it seems to me a lot of them fit into that category. But it really isn't all that complicated when we talk about prophecy. Being a prophet means that you speak on God's behalf in a way that is particularly inspired by God. For example, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now we know that David is the writer of Psalm 22, and we know that he was a prophet. Now not everything that he wrote was prophetic, but this was. I want to read a passage from Acts chapter 2, and we'll go back to it in a few moments. But in Acts chapter 2, verses 29 through 31, it says this, Brethren, and Luke is writing, of course, I am confidently, 
I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Now hold that verse in your heart and mind for a moment. We'll get to it in, in a few minutes. But um, I, think, I think this psalm, Psalm 22, really fits what Luke wrote about in Acts chapter 2. I believe that God chose and moved David through the Holy Spirit to write Psalm 22 for Christ to use, specifically at the, at the crucifixion, to communicate a message to those followers that were there then and to us who are here today. Now, a prophetic word doesn't necessarily have to be foretelling in the sense that it reveals the future, but we will see that this psalm fits that category. It does foretell the future. It's pretty clear from Psalm 22 that David was writing prophetically because it describes an event, a specific event, known as the crucifixion of Jesus that would take place some 1,000 years in the future. Not only that, but this form of execution called a crucifixion wouldn't even exist for another 300 years. According to history, it didn't start with the Romans, but they perfected its brutality and cruelty. But it would be at least another 300 years before anything resembling this kind of execution would exist. And so, a prophetic word is a message from God to his people. That's the simple definition. It's the simplest definition of prophecy according to the Bible. To proclaim a message from God. So let's stop here. What is the message of Psalm 22? A simple message. What is the main message of Psalm 22? Man, I, 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 Rob, I like to went crazy. I'm glad you gave me a couple of weeks to get ready for this because this is not a weak sermon. This takes a couple of weeks, and I'm not sure I did very well with it, but we're going to give it our best. I think it's this. This is the message. Christ suffered for our sins so that we might be saved. Christ suffered for our sins so that we might be saved. He wasn't executed by the state for being an insurrectionist. He was basically accused of being that, but technically an insurrectionist is characterized or an insurrection is characterized by violence. However, we've been studying the Gospel of John, and I know it wasn't too long ago that you studied the Gospel of John. One of the things that we noticed in the first few chapters is that he aggravated. He was an aggravationalist. That's not really a word, but... but it sounds good. It ought to be. He did. He aggravated the political leader and religious leaders. And, uh, and, and so uh, as we look at this, I want to break down the message, this, this psalm, in three points. Okay, Christ suffered, number one, for our sins, number two, so we could be saved. Suffered, sins, and saved, okay? Now, you're going to want me to skip the second point, but I've got to spend a little time talking about sin. So we, I'll just tell you that right up front. Let's talk about Christ's suffering for us. No words, I believe, in Scripture indicate the extreme suffering of Christ while on the cross more than the words that we find at the beginning of this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, these are the words that Jesus shared with all humanity at the height of his suffering when his physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual pain was at its height. Now, the idea of a suffering Savior or a Messiah should not have been a surprise for the devout Jew. It had been the message of the Old Testament prophets, a message that they had preached for years. For example, Isaiah the prophet. You will know these words. Preached these words some 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. Isaiah 53, 7, 6, 
5, 6, and 7 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we were healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Those words were written 700 years before the birth of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, there, that says a lot. Although... From my studies, Rob, okay, we're not sure exactly what that means. Some say, well, it means what it says. He was forsaken by God. Now, I, I'm just going to take it for what it says. I agree to that. Now, others say, well, God didn't really forsake his son. He was part of the trend. And there's a lot of different arguments. And, and there may be some good points to those arguments as well. But one thing we can all agree on as we look at these words, that these are the words of a man who was suffering. And his suffering was extreme. Matthew 27 tells us that from the ninth or the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does the psalm say about his suffering? And what do we read from the Gospels that go along with what the psalm predicted some 1,000 years earlier? The first thing that we noticed here is that God did not seem to be responding to Jesus that God seemed to be silent during that time. Why, verse 1 says, are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. Now some say, well, these are just the words of David. No, I don't believe that. I think these words are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is what he was experiencing in this time of being forsaken. When I think about these words, I think maybe Jesus was thinking back to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed that this cup would pass from him. I'm not sure that we can fully understand how troubling the silence must have been to the Lord Jesus Christ. It had to be. It is to us. When you and I pray and we're going through a situation and we pray about it and God doesn't seem to be listening that's troubling for us. But think about the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a new experience for Jesus who had had perfect fellowship with his heavenly Father in eternity past. There had never been a time when the two of them had not communicated. Up until this week, we call the Passion Week, and Jesus' time in the garden, he and his heavenly Father had had perfect communication. Okay, sometimes I'm a little distressed because God doesn't seem to be responding to my prayers, but... I didn't have that connection like Jesus had with his heavenly father. I'm working on it, but not yet. His heavenly father was silent for the first time. Nothing, no words of love, no encouragement, especially during the crucifixion when his father was most needed. You know, I was thinking about what, what response could have God made to the Lord Jesus at this particular time. I got to thinking about a couple of things, and I said, well, maybe I ought not to say that. It sounds a little bit sacrilegious. But he could have said, well, son, just hang in there. It, you know, it won't be much longer. Just hang in there. And I said, you know, I'm, maybe I shouldn't say that, but I went ahead and said it anyway. He could have said something like, you know, this is not going to last very long. Okay? I'm, I, I'm watching. I care. I love you. Some kind of word of encouragement. Nothing. You read that passage that talks about the Garden of Gethsemane and his experience. He prayed once. He got up, went to see his disciples, and they were asleep. He went back. He prayed again. Nowhere in that passage of Scripture does it indicate any response on the part of God. You know how it is. 
And when we need something and nobody responds, several years ago when I was right out of college, I went to, I went to be uh, an officer in the Air Force. I went to be uh, uh, 90-day wonders, what they call us, 30 days, you know, at, at OTS, Officers Training School, and you come out an officer. <laughs> that doesn't really happen that way, but that's what they tell you. A lot of things Army and Air Force tell you that's not really true, and I know because I spent 24 years there in both of them. But anyway... I remember halfway through that time, I called up my dad and I said, Father, I don't like it here. I want to go home. They're not treating me kindly. Matter of fact, one day I got so many demerits that my officer put an infinity sign on a piece of paper and stuck it in my drawer. That's a lot of demerits. And the only reason I knew that is because I'd been a math minor and I knew what the symbol was. And anyway... You know what my father told me? He said, son, you can stand on your head for three months. That's what he said. My father pastored. He was a dean of students. He could have done a little bit better than that. <laughs> son, you can stand on your head. I said, okay, Dad, thanks. I went back to my room and I thought, no, I can't. I can't stand on my head for three months. I don't think I can stand on my head for three minutes. Anyway, you know, something, something, Father. So we see that God was silent. As we follow the rest of these verses, he was despised and mocked, verses 6 through 8. Again, words that were prophetic in describing the experience of Jesus 1,000 years before that experience. Verse 6 says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everybody, despised by people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 8 says, He trusted the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. This mocking is highlighted in the gospel. For example, in Matthew chapter 27, Mark 15, it says, And they, speaking of the soldiers, stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his hand, right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hell, King of the Jews. Gospel of Luke chapter 23 says, The rulers scoffed at him. He saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers continued to mock him, saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. I want you to notice something real quick in verse 6 of Psalm 22. The word worm. The, the, the psalm indicates that Jesus here probably felt like a worm, less than human. A worm is far less than, than human, as far less from human as possibly can be. We think nothing of it when we take a, 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 a hook and pierce the end of a worm with that hook and toss it into the water for the sport of catching a fish. We don't think anything about worms, do we? A worm is an object of weakness and scorn. Maybe in his suffering, he no longer felt like God, no longer felt like a human. <clears throat> he might have felt like a worm. Let's remember that he was all man and not just God. We go on to look through these passages and these verses. He was overcome by ferocious men, it says. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravenous and roaring lion. Can't get that word out, so I'll just change it. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. You get the picture. All my bones are on display. People staring gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves and cast lots for my garments. Now, the word Bashan speaks of an area that was noted for its well-fed bulls. It was a biblical place east of the Jordan River that is mentioned about 60 times in Scripture. It's the picture of being surrounded by wild animals. Anybody here ever been surrounded by wild animals? Huh? Nobody? 
Nobody? Have you been jogging? Joggers here. They've been jogging down the road and all of a sudden find themselves amongst a bunch of dogs. Anybody? Am I the only one? I used to run a lot. Now my hips won't let me do it. I remember one time when I was in college, I was running. I was running through this area. It was sort of country. And I came on top of this hill, and there were two large German shepherds. They were about that big. All right? Right in the middle of the road. Why were they there? I don't know. But what do you do? You know, everybody tells you, don't show fear. They'll eat you if you show fear. So, you know, I'm trying not to show fear, and I'm scared to death. So I looked at both of those guys. I stopped for a moment. I looked at them both, and I said, don't even think about it. And they turned around and walked off. It was, it was a miracle. It was. But can you, you know, we, we, we look at something like this and we try to imagine what it must have been. The, Daniel in the lion's den is a good example of this. Okay, this is how he felt. There, there, there's a clear picture here of the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion of Jesus, and an accurate description of the soldiers and the religious leaders that were gathered around Jesus. They were mean people. They were bullies, ferocious. Then it goes on to say in verses 14 through 18, he went through the physical and emotional agony of the crucifixion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like potsherd. That's dry pottery. That's what that means. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. Here we go. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and feet. I'm reading this again, but it's good. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them, and they cast lots for my garments. Wow. You know, you can't read that without understanding how much Jesus really suffered. He really suffered when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's suffering beyond our imagination. Many years ago, back in 2004, I guess it was, I was in uh, Army National Guard and had gotten some orders to go to, uh, go to Iraq. And so we were at Fort Benning training, doing some special training, some things we didn't normally do. And on the year 2004, the movie, The Passion of Christ, came out. You remember that movie? How many of you saw that movie? Okay, great movie. It's rated R, but it needed to be because of what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I invited some of uh, my soldiers to go with me. One of them was a lady, Captain, and uh, she was a devout Catholic. In fact, she came to all my devotions and all my sermons. have no doubt in my mind that she had a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But we sat there, and we watched the movie, and she was sitting next to me, and I, and, and I was watching her, and she was really disturbed by what she saw, especially that part of the movie where Jesus was beaten and really beaten and really beaten beaten and beaten and crucified. You remember that, right? Do you remember how you felt? I was a little overwhelmed too, actually. I mean, I looked at that and I thought to myself, oh, I need to repent because I really haven't put the crucifixion in this context and realized what Jesus really suffered for, for my sake and for my sin. So we were leaving. I asked her about that. I said, what did what, you think about the movie? She said, it's too much. They did, they did Jesus too badly. That, that was just overdone. There's no way in the world that they should have depicted the crucifixion like they did. It just wasn't, it wasn't right. Now, I thought something different, obviously. And, and, I, and I got to thinking about this. 
because she's Catholic. If you've ever been to a Catholic church, I have. I've got some great Catholic friends that are believers. I'm not saying anything negative about Catholics. But in the Catholic church, they have Jesus on the cross. It's called a crucifix, right? Have you seen those before? Pretty, pretty serene and peaceful. Jesus has a little blood up here on his forehead, a little in his hands and feet, and a little coming out of his side where his side was pierced, right? But he looks pretty much like he fell asleep. That is not the picture of the movie and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, I, I believe this. I, I believe that if you took the Jesus that was crucified in the movie and put him on a cross in a Catholic church, uh, it wouldn't go over very well. It'd be too offensive. It'd be, it'd, be, it'd be too much. And so, you know, in trying to explain to her what we saw and what we experienced, I said, you know what, I really believe that that's a great picture of what Jesus went through because of my sin. Matter of fact, it could have been a lot worse. I don't know how it could have been, but it was bad. And I said, what you need to do is this. Don't look at the cross in that movie and what Christ went through as a Catholic. Don't look at it as a Baptist. Don't look at it as a, a Methodist. You need to look at that as a sinner. And if you'll look at that as a sinner, you'll realize that what Jesus went through was beyond your imagination. But he did it because you needed forgiveness. I don't know how she, she took that, but that's the best I could come up with. The simple truth is that Jesus suffered and was forsaken, whatever that means. And he did that. He went through that for my sin. Christ suffered for our sin so we could be saved. Point number two. How am I doing with time? I got ten minutes, right? Okay. Oh, that's right. That's right. Rob's, that, that's good. Okay. Let's look at number two, my sin. Okay. Uh, there's a, there's a um, painting by the Dutch painter Rembrandt. He painted in 1633. It's the picture of the crucifixion named the raising of the cross. Now, at the base of the cross is a strange-looking man wearing a blue hat and a blue shirt who definitely does not look like anyone else in the picture. The colors alone stand out in contrast to the rest of the painting. As he was famous for, Rembrandt had painted himself into the picture, the raising of the cross. By placing himself in the base of the cross in the middle of the painting, Rembrandt was obviously saying something very clearly. I was there too. I am responsible for, as anyone, for Jesus going to the cross. Would you be willing to say that today? Just raise your hand. Are you willing to say that? that? That I am responsible as much as anybody. Matter of fact, if I'd been the only sinner in the world, that, in, that Jesus would have died for me. Well, the Bible tells us the same, that you and I are responsible for Jesus going to the cross. And the reason is we're all sinners. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with with the scripture. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you were healed. Matter of fact, Jesus actually became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For your sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, I take a drink of water before I say this. We're all sinners, all right? We are. We don't like to admit it. It's not a topic we like to talk about today, but the Bible says, for all have sinned. There was a popular preacher a few years back. He was preaching on sin, and he said this, we all sin. If you knew the sin in my life, you wouldn't listen to me. 
He said, but that's okay. If I knew the sin in your life, I wouldn't talk to you. All right? He's right. We don't like to think of ourselves as sinners. Years ago when I was uh, in the seminary, I went to serve as a sermon missionary in a church right outside of Dallas in a small town called Carrollton, Texas. I think that was the name of it. A little suburb of, of Dallas. And so uh, what we had to do when I was serving for this church is we had to go out four hours a day, knock on doors, and witness to folks. Now, that's not, that's not the best way to do it. I'm going to tell you something. It's better than nothing, all right? It's better than nothing. I had a great time doing that. I remember one day I knocked on the door. This young man came to the door, and uh, he was sharing a house with his brother. So they invited, not everybody invited to see him. We'd say something like, well, we're from Trinity Heights Baptist Church, and that was the church that was in the neighborhood, and we're just out inviting folks to church, and we'd like to really talk about Jesus. I mean, how else do you say it? I mean, sometimes you just got to come right out and say, well, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. And the guy said, okay, come on in. They were really nice. Gave us a glass of water. Man, it was Dallas in the summer. We needed a glass of water. We were glad when somebody invited us in. So we went in, and we sat down, and we talked a little bit about our church, and we talked about some other things. And then I kind of worked my way in, in, into the gospel uh, presentation, and I was doing really good, man. I was, man, I was good. That was before I was a preacher, okay? And so I was doing really good until I got to the sin thing. And I said, the reason we need Jesus and the reason we need a Savior is because we're all sinners. The guy looked at me and said, hey, I'm not a sinner. I'm not perfect, but I'm not a sinner. I thought to myself, because I, you know, I hadn't done this a whole lot, I thought to myself, well, I guess that's it. I guess that's it. So I, so I looked at him and said, well, I'm gone. Man, I've enjoyed our conversation together. He said, well, where are you going? I said, well, you're, a sin you're not a sinner. You don't need to know the rest of the story. You got it made, man. You're going to die and go right to heaven. God looked at me and said, you leaving? I said, yeah. You, you're good to go. Turned around and walked off. He said, hey, come back here and tell me the rest of the story just in case. <laughs> now, he had to get over that, you know, that, that barrier of uh, being a sinner, but it didn't take too long. I don't know how all that turned out. I think we planted a seed, and I hope and pray that eventually he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But we did get the gospel presented that day. It's not popular in our day to emphasize our sinfulness. We don't have sin. We have shortcomings. We have weaknesses. We're victims of a poor environment. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible uses words like wickedness, iniquity, debauchery. <laughs> Throw those words out and see what people think. We want an upbeat message that glosses over our sin. Let me give you an illustration real quick. i got to hurry up. Uh, remember that song, those of us who are old, older, At the Cross? At the Cross? Let me know that, okay? Good song, great song. Okay, it was. Okay? It's, it was like this years ago. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Okay, they came out with a new edition of the songbook, and it read this. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Okay? Now, sinners are still sinners, but they're better than worms. At least they're human. All right? So there's an improvement, making everybody feel a little bit better. Then they came out with a new edition. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such... For someone such as I. Whoa. Kind of watering that song down a little bit, right? 
Yeah, we're sinners. Christ died for sinners. He suffered for my sin so that I might be saved. Like Rembrandt, I was there. We all were. If we're willing to admit it, then we can move on to the third part of our message. My message this evening, I might be saved. Psalm 22 doesn't end on the defeat of the crucifixion. It goes on to the victory of the resurrection and the glories which follow and therefore our theme of a present and future hope that we might be saved. Here's, here the message changes from suffering and sins to salvation. Save me, verse 21, from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Now, when I was studying for this, man, I, I got lost in this part of the passage because there's so much hope wrapped up in these words. I could preach another hour just on this part of the, the psalm. But, but, but some of the experts say, and I'm not one of them, that what happened between verse 21 and 22 was the resurrection because there's a change of tone here. Kind of reminds me of what I shared a moment ago from the book of Acts chapter, chapter 2. The, the, the author wrote these words, Brethren, I'm confident, I comp, may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried in his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet, he knew that God was sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Right here. Right here, I'm convinced. Now listen to these words. I'm going to take the time to read them because they're too good not to read. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You'll see the tone change. All you offspring of Jacob, that is us, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. He's listening. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your heart live forever. I like that little phrase there. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation will worship before you. For kingship belongs to God, the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Prosperity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, and they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Love that. While the doctrine of the resurrection is not revealed, the theme is present. God makes alive. God heals. God restores. God answers. These are the benefits of our salvation and the basis of our present and future hope. Let me wrap things up with some words from one of my commentaries. Either this psalm is prophetic, pointing to Christ, or it is meaningless, but it isn't. But it not only points to Christ as we have proposed, it was on Christ's heart as he hung on the cross. He endured the silence of God in that awful moment knowing that his cry would be answered and through his suffering the nations would be blessed. Psalm 22 held him in support in his hour of darkness. In Christ, this psalm will hold us too. The basis of our hope is not who we are, but who he, he is and who he became as the resurrected Lord. And I got to thinking about the cross back then and the people that stood beneath it. 
I know there were some followers. Uh, there were the disciples that were there because they wrote about the experience. And there were other people that, that were uh, probably followers as well, good people. There were some mean people and bad people and things like I just got to thinking, was there anybody like me? You know, I would like to know I would fit into the category of being a follower. But was there anybody like that? I'm sure there was. There was someone there like all of us. Because we were all there, we really were, as sinners. I got to thinking about that a little bit more. Was there anybody there that went, hey, I know what's happening next? Was it? Was there anybody there that had read Psalm 22 or the prophet Isaiah? Surely there should have been somebody there that knew that there was more to come. I'd like to think that there was one person, I don't care whether they were male or female, that was in that crowd and they were going around saying, hey, this ain't it. There's more to come. <laughs> There's more to come. Come on. Be hopeful. There's more to come. I don't guess there was. But you know what? We stand beneath the same cross today. It's empty. We stand before an empty tomb. But you know what? We ought to be standing there with hope knowing that there's more to come and there's a lot more to come. And it's that knowledge that enables us to face the circumstances, whatever they may be, in our world today with a hope that uh, is grounded in what Christ did on the cross. So be hopeful. Be hopeful. That's the message. I think that's the message of all the prophetic psalms. That's really the message of God's word. So be encouraged. Be hopeful. Let's pray. Let's pray together. Every head bowed and every eye closed. And let's just take a moment. You know, I say this quite often on Sunday morning, that every worship service demands a response. And if we don't respond in some way, if we get up and leave church or drive away, maybe the case here, and we don't respond, then we haven't worshipped. Every song we sing, every verse we share, every message we hear, every worship experience we have demands a response on our part. It doesn't matter how mature we may be as a believer. There is something we need to do in response to hearing God's Word. Whether I did a good job with it or not, you heard Scripture. You heard God's Word. So what is the response that I'm to make in light of these wonderful words? Let's claim that action. Let's make it happen in our lives. Father, we thank you so much for um, what we know to be true. Now, I have to admit, sometimes we don't live like we know what is true. We get caught up in the business of everyday life, and we sometimes forget what we have only in you. The world offers so much, and we just sometimes need to stop and be reminded that we have, we have more from you than we have from the world. The world really has not much to offer us that's going to last forever, but it does offer us a hope for today and a hope for tomorrow. Thank you for that. We honor you 
for that. We praise you for that. Now we need to take that, that truth, and live it out for others to see. Because your word reminds us that if people will notice the hope in our life, it'll give us the opportunity to extend the kingdom. And those last few words were a promise about the kingdom. We're glad to be a part of it. But we need to be a part of it in the sense that we're sharing the good news to build the kingdom. Thank you for the opportunity to have hope and to be a part of your work of grace in this world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.